All right, we are just getting started with our study on the theme of Christ in the Old Testament structures. We're breaking down our study of the types and shadows, the symbols, the Old Testament symbols that pointed forward to Christ. We're breaking them down into seven subcategories. We've already covered Christ in Old Testament things, and now we're on structures. And I've identified in our study last week that there are primarily four great uh, typological or symbolic structures in the Old Testament that that point forward to the person and work of Christ in special symbolic ways, prophetic ways. And those four structures, two of them we covered last week, are the Garden of Eden and uh, Noah's Ark. And we've seen that uh, there are a few overlap points to the various structures. Each structure is different, it's unique unto itself, but uh, there is some correlation between the various structures, and I'll I'll, I'll probably point out one or two of those as we uh, go further tonight. So what we have left is the, the final two structures, which are more similar to each other, of course, than both the garden and the ark were. And these are the tabernacle in the wilderness and the temple of God that was um, the, the fourth and final structure erected in the city of Jerusalem. Now, um, what we're going to be doing is there's so much uh, with the study of the symbolism of the tabernacle and the temple. Um, if we were to try to exhaustively study all the symbolism of the tabernacle and temple, we would probably uh, just camp there with those two structures for uh, maybe 12 studies. But um, for the sake of what we're trying to accomplish, which, which is a, a sufficient overview of Christ in the Old Testament. I'm going to try to cover um, this topic uh, on the tabernacle and temple in three studies. So tonight, and I anticipate two additional studies after this. What I want to do tonight is kind of a high-level overview of the symbolism of the tabernacle and the temple. We're going to look at some of the details, but uh, the next two studies we'll look at more of the actual details of the, the difference of the construction of the tabernacle and the construction of the temple and how each one points to Christ in a unique and special way. But for tonight, as I said, kind of a, a high-level overview, and, and that is a focus on God's purpose, his big purpose in having the tabernacle and the temple constructed. And so let's just start in Exodus 25 with when the Lord first brings up to Moses um, Moses is, of course, with the children of Israel, camped at the foot of Mount Sinai at this point in the Exodus account. And uh, the Lord has called Moses to come up and join him on the mountaintop. And the end of chapter 24, notice that uh, verses 17 and 18 describes that the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. That's in the, uh, the pillar of fire and cloud that descended upon Mount Sinai, the, the same pillar that had led them out of Egypt so far and across the Red Sea and into the wilderness. And then in verse 18, Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. So Moses is, is just in the immediate presence of the Lord, without the children of Israel. It's only Moses and the Lord in the cloud, and he's there for a long period of time, 40 days and 40 nights, and the Lord reveals to him two things primarily. The two things are, he reveals to him the law uh, with a focal point on the two tablets of the law, which the Lord is going to write with his own uh, finger upon those tablets, the Ten Commandments. And then uh, the majority of what is going to uh, be the focal point of the rest of the chapters of Exodus tonight, uh, from chapter 25 all the way through verse 40, is all of the details. There's some story, some narrative that's interwoven between those chapters, but primarily from 25 to 40, the focus of what is revealed to Moses on the mountain is a plan uh, a blueprint for the construction of a new structure that was not 
just a bright idea that Moses or any of the other Israelites had, but a, a structure that the Lord introduces to Moses and then commands him to have built. So let's read just these first several verses of chapter 25 that introduces the tabernacle. Uh, verse 1 of 25, the Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel that they take from me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution from me. And this is the contribution you, were, you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamp, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting, for the ephod and for the breastpiece. And let them, and verse 8 now is kind of a summary of what, what is the point, what is the purpose behind this special contribution that the Lord wants Moses to take from the people. Let them make me <clears throat> a sanctuary. The word sanctuary simply conveys the idea of a holy space, a special space a space that's going to occupy a specific location on planet Earth, but it's going to be consecrated and set apart for the Lord's own holy and special purposes. Now, in this case with the tabernacle, as you know and understand, it's going to be a movable space, meaning it's going to be set up and erected, and when it's set up and erected, wherever they happen to be camped, wherever the Lord leads them to camp, this is going to be the first structure that's going to be erected throughout all of their 40-year journey through the wilderness. And it will, once it's erected, each time establish that spot on planet Earth as the most holy and sacred spot on the face of the Earth. All right, so let them make me a sanctuary. All of that's conveyed by the word sanctuary. That I may dwell in their midst. And so this is where the Lord introduces the double purpose of what this contribution is meant to lead to. It's meant to lead to the construction of a holy space for the Lord's special purpose. And the ultimate purpose of that holy space is that the Lord may dwell among them. Now, the idea here is that the Lord has an intention. His intention is to move into the midst of the camp of Israel. He has a desire in his heart. He wants to move into the midst of the camp, but he can't at this present moment in time until this sanctuary is erected. The reason for that is the spiritual backstory that we know as the, in a sense, the first principle of the gospel. The first principle of the gospel is not, you know, this is how the Lord has provided a way for you to be saved. The first principle of the gospel is come to an understanding of why you need to be saved. And so the idea is the Lord wants to move into the midst of the camp of Israel, but he can't because of the defilement within the camp. The defilement within the camp has to do with the sinfulness of the people that he has called into a covenant relationship with himself. So he is going to make a special structure to be built. And in that structure, he is going to provide a saving and redeeming way for him to be able to move into the midst of his people, to be in close proximity in covenant relationship with them without defiling himself by being in close proximity to them. So let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. And then verse 9 is a key principle in relationship to this purpose that's in the Lord's heart for this holy space. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all of its furniture, so you shall make it. So there's two key words in verse 9 that I want to emphasize, and the words are exactly and so. And they're both in relationship to a third key word in the verse, which is the word pattern. So the Lord is revealing to Moses, I have this intention, I have this desire, I have this purpose, I want to make a dwelling for myself in the midst of the camp of Israel, and that will enable and allow the Lord and his people to enjoy close proximity covenant relationship. 
But in order for that to happen, the house, the special holy structure that is going to be built, has to be built according to a very pre-planned and specific pattern. And that pattern has not yet been revealed to Moses, but in the remaining 40 days and 40 nights that he's spending in the wilderness, the Lord is prepping the, the heart and mind of Moses to say, I am going to show you, I'm going to reveal to you the pattern for the construction of this sanctuary. In a sense, he's going to give Moses a holy blueprint for the construction of this tabernacle. But then he holds Moses, first and foremost, and then all of the children of Israel um, following the lead of Moses, he holds them accountable to build this sanctuary and structure exactly according to the pattern. And just so you shall make it, emphasizing you are going to be accountable to not deviate or veer from the blueprint in any of its details. Not just in the big and obvious principles, but down to every exacting detail of how the blueprint is revealed to him. Now, um, let's go a little bit deeper into the same chapter. Now, let's jump down to the very end of chapter 25, verse 40. Now, the Lord, in in the intervening verses, has introduced some of the elements that are going to be part of this sanctuary, but then he concludes this introduction about the tabernacle with this repetition of his concern. Verse 40, and see that you make them, this is not just now, the structure, but even all of the furnishings that are going to fill the structure, see that you make them after the pattern for them, which is being shown you on the mountain. Meaning, he's just reminding Moses, you're here for a purpose. You're not here on the mountaintop in, in the, in the um, Shekinah glory cloud just to take kind of a spiritual vacation from the uh, responsibilities of leadership that Moses has been concerned with. You're here in order to receive this revelation and then go down the mountain and carry out this revelation. Now, at this point, I think we're intended to stop and ask the question, why is it so important that Moses follows out the exact pattern of what the Lord is revealing to him on the mountain in the construction of this sanctuary. Um, I use as a contrary or contrasting example, uh, God's people in our generation, um, you know, in in what we identify as churches, um, they meet in all kinds of different locations and all kinds of different structures. Like we meet in this fairly nice structure. I have no complaints about it. The, the, um, the host church that we rent from, of course, has, as you know, been putting a lot of time and effort and energy into renovating this relatively old structure. And it looks and functions much nicer than it did even a couple of years ago. But uh, this is just one example of a structure that is useful for church meetings. If you went to the next church down the road, uh, you would find probably some similarities. Most churches are set up in a similar kind of way. Seating is somewhat similar. It might be difference between chairs and pews. The chairs or the pews might be arranged a little bit differently. Generally speaking, there's a, a center aisle. There's usually a stage. Um, you know, there's some obvious similarities, but every single church structure is a little bit different. Uh, is there a divinely revealed new covenant or new testament pattern for where and in what structures the church is to meet and the answer is no there is not there is a divinely revealed pattern for the parallel new covenant structure which is the church itself but you and i understand in a new covenant context that the church is not the structure in which it meets. The church is a living structure made of living stones, and we are the structure. So there is a patterning to that living structure that we call the church, that this patterning from the old covenant tabernacle, and then we'll see in just a moment, the temple as well points forward to, which is all 
pointing forward to the work of Christ in building his church. Remember, we've been recently emphasizing the statement of the Lord Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew, what I called his personal purpose statement in which he identified this is why he came. He said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The idea being that there is a structure being built, but it's not a physical structure like the Old Testament tabernacle was in the Old Testament temple. So what's interesting is that in our meetings today in the New Covenant, the Lord gives churches great freedom to determine exactly how they want their structures to be in terms of where they meet, how they have their meetings. Um, And each leadership group for each one of those churches has their own preferences, their own decisions, their own tastes. Uh, Each one is a little bit different than the other. For instance, uh, as nice as this structure is, if we owned this structure, we would probably make a little bit different decisions than some of the decisions that are made by those that do own this structure. We have that freedom. God does not give Moses, and later when Solomon builds the temple, he does not give Solomon any leeway at all in terms of the Lord never says to Moses, he never says to Solomon, hey guys, um, I've got this great idea. I want a dwelling place so that I can dwell in the midst of my people. And what I want you to do is I want you to bring, bring together your, your brightest and most creative minds and come up with a really, really nice and beautiful uh, design for a structure be sure to run it by me before you know you actually build it and I'll let you know if there's any changes I want made but whatever you guys come up with as long as it's really nice and really beautiful that will serve my purpose and it'll be fine for me the Lord doesn't reveal the tabernacle plan or the temple plan later to Solomon along those lines he reveals it in exactly the opposite way he says to Moses I want a structure it's holy It's going to serve my purpose, and my purpose is to dwell in the midst of my people. But in order for that to be fulfilled, it has to be built exactly how I reveal it to you with no wiggle room for deviation from the plan or the blueprint. So the question I want us to ask as we jump a little bit further into this is why? Why is that so important? And the simple answer is, that every detail of these structures has a redeeming symbolic connection to the person and work of Christ. Every single detail. Do you remember as we were studying, when we were looking at Old Testament things, Christ and the Old Testament things, remember we were studying the, um, the event in the Exodus of how the Lord called Moses in order to in order to meet the need for the people of God to drink uh, life-giving water in their desert journey through the wilderness, he told him to take the staff that um, he had been carrying, Moses had been carrying through the wilderness, and approach a specific rock. And he told Moses, I'm going to stand on that rock. And what I want you to do in the eyes of all the people is I want you to take the staff and I want you to strike the rock. And when you do, the rock that I'm standing on, which is a symbolic, as we, as we saw, a symbolic striking of the one standing on the rock. When you strike the rock, the rock is going to crack open and out of it is going to come a river of water that will be sufficient to satisfy the thirst of all of the people. Now, I read just recently a, an interesting mathematical uh, probability in terms of how much water would be necessary because we're talking about a minimum of 3 million people. Um, The scripture mentions the the number 3 million, but most theologians um, agree that that 3 million is just counting the heads of households, the adult male heads of households. So including women and children, more than 3 million people journeying through the wilderness for 40 days, I mean, excuse me, 40 years, And in that 40-year journey, how often in a wilderness, desert environment, how often do you need to drink? Every day. Every single day, without exception. And um, the 
the mathematical uh, workup that I saw estimated that it would be the equivalent. Have you ever seen these um, these trains that are are um, towing these uh, huge uh, cylindrical cars that have some kind of liquid within them? You know, it could be carrying milk, it could be carrying gasoline, could be carrying any number of, of liquids. They said that it was approximately to satisfy the thirst of that many people approximately 50 cars of those liquid containers would be necessary every sing- 50 cars full of that every single day in order to be able to provide enough water to satisfy the thirst of that many people coming out of this rock so moses did that he according to the command of the lord he struck the rock the rock parted, water came forth from the rock, the people drank, but then fast forwarding some significant amount of time, later in their journey, uh, Moses in another circumstance where the people were grumbling and complaining again, um, and in this case they were complaining about uh, the necessary water that they had to drink for that day, along with a complaint about food. And uh, Moses in his frustration Do you remember what he did the second time in relationship to the rock? He took the staff, the same staff that he struck the rock with the first time, and the Lord instructed him this time, what I want you to to do is I want you to approach the rock, and this time I don't want you to strike the rock, I want you to simply speak to the rock, and as you speak to the rock, the water will come forth from the rock. But in his frustration, Moses took the staff and struck the rock, not just once in disobedience to the Lord, but struck the rock twice, And all of that ultimately ruined what the Lord was portraying as a symbol of the sacrificial death of Christ on the cross, bringing forth the waters of salvation for his people in the new covenant. And um, it portrayed in, in striking the rock twice that Christ needed to die more than once on the cross in order to satisfy the needs of the people. And so as a result, the Lord said what to Moses after he did that? He said, you're going to, okay, you, up until now, my plan was for you to enter the promised land with the people, uh, but now you're going to die in the wilderness. I will allow you, because of your faithful service for all of these years, I'll allow you to uh, come up on this mountain near the promised land, the border to the promised land, and I'll I'll allow you to peer into the promised land and see what you're missing out on. But that's it, you're going to die here, and you're not going to go any further. And of course, that's exactly what did happen to Moses. So the point of me telling that whole story again is simply that this highlights for us the significance that the Lord attaches to the details of these types and shadows that point to Christ. Because if you change the symbolism, you're changing the gospel story in essence. So this is why the Lord says to Moses, you, I'm giving you a plan. I'm giving you a, a, a revealed blueprint. I want you to follow it exactly. I want you to carry, out, carry it out just so you're not free to make any modifications or deviations. Now, uh, let's look at, did I read verse 40? Let me reread it. Uh, we're in chapter 25. See that you make them after the pattern for them which is being shown you on the mountain. So I'm just reading that one to reemphasize that the Lord says it twice to Moses. One chapter later, turn over to chapter 26. Now the Lord is getting into the details of the actual tabernacle itself, revealing the plan to Moses. Skip down to verse... uh, I'll start in verse 29. You shall overlay the frames with gold and shall make their rings of gold for holders for the bars. And you shall overlay the bars with gold. Then you shall erect the, ta- you shall erect the tabernacle according to the plan for it that you were shown on the mountain. All right, so within two chapters now, this is the third time that the Lord emphasizes, I want you to do it exactly according to the plan. Now, if you're Moses at this point, you have one, of, one or two reactions to this. You're either going to get a little bit frustrated at this point and say, hey, you've told me three times already. Have you ever been told something by someone in authority over you three times, but it started to frustrate you after the second time? 
it could possibly be that Moses was getting frustrated at this point, but I, I probably think instead that Moses is just letting it sink in that the details are significant and there's no wiggle room in regard to the carrying out of these instructions. He may not understand and most likely did not the fullness of the symbolic connections pointing forward to a coming new covenant fulfilled in Christ. But he hears the audible voice of the Lord emphasizing now three times, I want it this way and I want it no other way. All right, let's skip to now chapter 40 and see what Moses does with this triple instruction. We'll start in verse 33. I'll just get the last phrase of verse 32. As the Lord commanded Moses, verse 33, and he, that's Moses, erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen of the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. Then, and that word then in verse 34 is very significant because what happens after the word then would not have happened had Moses not finished the work in verse 33. So this is like a, an if-then thing, meaning that Moses was required to fulfill a condition. The condition was obedience to follow the blueprint exactly as the Lord revealed it. And when he did, then the Lord would act in the way that he intended to act. So verse 34, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting. And of course, by the cloud, we're not, I know you know this, but we're not talking about a natural meteorological phenomenon. We're talking about a spiritual cloud, which the Lord later describes in other passages as a a garment that he was wearing to cover his own glory so that he would not blind his people in the midst of his people. And also it's a gracious thing that the Lord was covering his glory with a cloud because during the daylight hours in their journey through the wilderness, the cloud was functioning as a shade generator for the children of Israel on their journey so that they were not overwhelmed by the heat of the sun. So then the cloud covered the tent of meeting. Where was the cloud prior to this moment in verse 34? It w- no, the cloud was on earth. The cloud was with the people of God. It was in near proximity to the people of God, but it was always just outside of the camp of Israel and just in front of the camp, meaning Wherever the children of Israel were journeying, they were always following the cloud. So the cloud was always in the lead and the people were always following the direction of the cloud. And when they stopped prior to the construction of the tent by Moses, when they stopped, the cloud stopped outside of the camp of Israel. So you have an imperfect picture of covenant relationship right? If a husband marries a bride, are they meant to live together or are they meant to live in close proximity but always separate from each other? Of course they're meant to live together. But the Lord in the groom, the husband role, and Israel in the bride or wife role are in close proximity up until this moment of time, but they're not in the fullness of expression of what true covenant relationship means, which is dwelling together. So it's at this moment that the cloud covers the tent of meeting. For the first time, the Lord now, because the tent of meeting was erected at the center of the camp of Israel, all of the tribes camped around the tent of meeting. And so for the first time, the cloud comes into the camp of Israel. It's never happened prior to this moment of history, going all the way back to the Garden of Eden, where the Lord is dwelling with his people. This is the first time. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Now, what's the significance of that? First, the cloud from above covers the tent, but now 
the cloud goes deeper than just a coverage of the tent from above. The cloud actually goes through the roof of the tabernacle and fills and occupies the structure itself. This signifies symbolically the Lord is now moving into his house with the tabernacle representing the house of the Lord. And when we say house, let's just be clear, this is a cultural thing. Um, Our houses generally are are constructed in our culture, our society today, of timber and plaster, that kind of stuff. Um, Cement, various various things like that. Uh, For the children of Israel during their 40-year journey in the wilderness, what were their houses constructed of? Tents. They lived in tents, and so the Lord had a tent constructed for himself, and he lived in tents, in a tent. Now, this is going to change when we get to the temple of God, because there in Jerusalem, the Lord is going to establish a permanent structure, which is going to be made of different materials, because his people have permanently settled in that location. But here, it has to be a movable structure, a flexible structure. It has to be a tent in order to match the dwellings of his people. And so this is the Lord moving into his new house. And we're told in verse 35, Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. That tells us, and we're going to see a similarity when the temple is first constructed as well, a similar circumstance, that tells us that this is a house for exclusive use. This is the Lord's house. It's not the house of Moses. It's for the Lord alone. There will be Levites, including a high priest later, who are going to enter the house on a daily basis and serve the Lord's purpose in it, but it's for the dwelling of the Lord himself. And then verse 36 Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out until the day it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. All right, so we have, from a high-level perspective, without looking at any of the specific details of the tabernacle we have this understanding now that this is the house of the lord he wanted it to be built it's his dream house so to speak he wanted it to be built exactly the way he wanted it but it's not just because he's uh, kind of nitpicky in regards to where he wants to live for just random purposes all of these details of the blueprint and the construction of this structure are pointing forward in a typological, symbolic way to the person and work of Christ. All right, let's jump now forward in history to 1 Chronicles. And what we're going to see is a very similar patterning going on in 1 Chronicles, and we're going to be in chapter 22. And now we're dealing with the temple of God. So lots of history passes between Exodus 40 and 1 Chronicles 22. The entire 40 years of the wilderness journey has taken place. And now the children of Israel have crossed the river Jordan and they're now into the promised land. There's the whole period of time under the leadership of Joshua where they conquer the promised land. They do it uh, not perfectly. They never entirely finish the conquest, but nevertheless, they do conquer and settle the land. And now, uh, through all of the intervening years and the years of the judges, and now we're at the tail end of the years of the judges and at the beginning of a new way of organizing themselves and governing themselves, we are entering the beginnings of the kingdom that's being revealed in the nation of Israel under the leadership first of uh, King Saul and now King David. And let's pick up with King David's story, and we're going to read starting in verse 6 of 1 Chronicles 22. Uh, This is in reference to David. Then he called for Solomon his son. And by the way, we're at the end 
of David's natural life in this world. Then he called for Solomon his son and charged him. And charged has this connotation of giving a serious assignment. An assignment that rises in significance and importance above all other assignments that that person uh, has to fulfill. Then he called for Solomon his son and charged him to build a house for the Lord, the God of Israel. David said to Solomon, My son, I had it in my heart to build a house to the name of the Lord my God. But the word of the Lord came to me saying, You have shed much blood and have waged great wars. You shall not build a house to my name because you have shed so much blood before me on the earth. Behold, a son shall be born to you who shall be a man of rest. I will give him rest from all his surrounding enemies for his name shall be Solomon, which roughly translates to our understanding of the word peace. But it's, it's closer to the, which is a, it's similar but fuller in its connotations, the Hebrew word that you're probably all familiar with, shalom. So Solomon is the name version of the Hebrew concept for peace, which is shalom. Now the difference is, for us, the word peace has a variety of meanings. It can be as simple as, you know, if you're talking on a national level, two nations are not currently fighting with each other, but they they might be hating each other in their hearts. Whereas the Hebrew word for shalom, which means peace, conveys a, a greater sense of a healed and restored previously broken relationship. A relationship that's been broken beyond natural repair but the Lord has intervened and has healed and restored that relationship and is established between previously parties that were previously at odds with each other a, a relationship of true peace real peace between them where not just they're not currently fighting but they actually are at rest with each other in that relationship so the Lord is essentially telling David Uh, even though you had a good idea to build a house for me, I've got my own plans in terms of who I want to symbolically portray as the builder of my house. The builder of my house needs to be two things, a man of rest and a man of peace. And David, while he does uh, um, adequately represent the Lord in other ways, and I'm talking about the Son of God who is coming and who will identify himself as his most favored title uh, from, taken from the Old Testament to identify his assignment as Messiah was son of David. Uh, he doesn't call himself David. He calls himself son of David because Jesus is the man of rest and the man of peace who has come to build the house of God, which is in the new covenant, as I mentioned earlier, the church of God. Uh, let's keep reading. Uh, Let me reread verse 9. Behold, a son shall be born to you who shall be a man of rest. I will give him rest from all his surrounding enemies, for his name shall be Solomon. And I will give peace and quiet to Israel in his days. He shall build a house for my name. He shall be my son, and I will be his father. And I will establish his royal throne in Israel forever. Now, this is, of course, a special promise. It's a promise not just of peace and rest, but it's a promise of a continuation of a, of a kingdom and a throne which represents the authority over that kingdom. But all of that tied to the son of David, who is this man of rest and man of peace. And of course, this, is, this promise is pointing forward to Christ sitting upon the throne of God in heaven at the fulfillment of the plan and purpose of God in saving his people. Uh, as Jesus ascended back to heaven, sat upon the throne of God, and from that day forward is resting in the fulfillment and the accomplishment of the plan of salvation. All right, so let's, um, let's look over, and I know you're familiar with this, but let's connect this prophecy of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 9. A prophecy that's usually read um, almost exclusively at Christmas time, but... Um, 
its connotations are much broader than Christmas. Uh, it, it came to be associated with a, as a Christmas prophecy because it, it's talking about the birth of a special child, a messianic child, a special child. But the emphasis of the verse is not on his birth. The emphasis of the verse is on the fulfillment of his work once he grows to maturity. We're reading from Isaiah 9, verse 6, and verse 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government, and here the the focus of the government is not any earthly government, but the government of the kingdom of God. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and then this fourth one that I want to emphasize, Prince of Peace. So Solomon, at this point, when David was calling for Solomon, uh, Solomon is functioning as a prince in the kingdom, but he is identified with this distinguished quality of being a man of rest and a man of peace. And so we see here prophetically Isaiah pointing forward to Christ, identifies himself, identifies Christ as the Prince of Peace. Then verse 7, the fulfillment of his, of his uh, special assignment of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth forever and forever more the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this and of course this was all accomplished and fulfilled again when Christ ascended back to heaven and sat upon the throne which is the throne of the kingdom of God all right so let's go from there now to um, back to first chronicles but now chapter 28. First Chronicles chapter 28, we'll pick up a couple of key verses here. Verse 11. Then David gave Solomon his son the plan of the vestibule of the temple and of its houses, its treasuries, its upper rooms and its inner chambers and of the room for the mercy seat, that being, of course, the the holy of holies. And the plan of all that he had in mind for the courts of the house of the Lord, all the surrounding chambers, the treasuries of the house of God and the treasuries for the dedicated gifts. So, uh, what we learn here is that the, the Lord had given to David a plan for the construction of a new structure that's going to take the place of the first structure, which is the tabernacle. The tabernacle has served its purpose in history, and now its purpose is coming to an end. But God still wants a house in the midst of his people, but the house has to change. There's going to be a renovation of the house So the tabernacle, the movable uh, structure that's going to travel throughout all the journeys of Israel with Israel is now coming to a permanent resting place in one special location, which is, of course, the city of Jerusalem. And now the structure is going to be rebuilt from the ground up, and there's going to be similarity in the layout, similarity in the function, but there are going to be distinctions in various details of its construction which we will look at probably two weeks uh, from tonight all right let's look over now in the same chapter at verse 19 so in the intervening verses between 12 and 19 if we had the time i'd read them david's giving solomon some of the details of what's going to be involved in the building of this new temple and then verse 19 kind of sums up this account and says David speaking to Solomon about how he came about uh, you know uh, writing down these plans all this and the he here is referring to the Lord all this he made clear to me in writing from the hand of the Lord 
all the work to be done according to the plan. So there's two elements here that we need to notice. One is David's testimony to his son Solomon as he's passing on the responsibility of constructing this temple. He's not telling Solomon, as I was referring to earlier, Solomon, the Lord wants a really nice house. You know, get your best architects together and figure it out. He says, I had it in my heart to build a structure for the Lord, and he gave me the blueprint for its construction, but he won't allow me to carry it out because I'm a man of war. So he has appointed you to carry out the plans that he's revealed to me. So in the construction of the temple, there's kind of a team effort going on. The plans revealed to David, and then the fulfillment and the the follow-through of the construction itself by Solomon, his son. All right, now let's skip over to 2 Chronicles chapter 5, and we'll pick up two passages in chapter 5 of 2 Chronicles. So all of the chapters in between, uh, one is, um, there's a, a kind of a, a brief description of David's final days. David has now died, and he has left Solomon responsible for the carrying out of the construction of what was revealed to him in the Lord's hand upon David through what we would call an inspired planning for the construction of the temple. And now we're going to pick up with um, what Solomon has done with those plans. The summary, verse 5 of 2 Chronicles uh, chapter, uh, verse 1 of 2 Chronicles chapter 5. Thus all the work that Solomon did for the house of the Lord was finished. Now that should ring a bell for us, especially since we've just studied the first account back in Exodus chapter 40. Uh, The similarity is, and Moses finished the work. Now Solomon finishes the work. The work is a little bit different because Moses' work was the tabernacle, Solomon's work is the temple, but they're both faithful to follow out the detailed blueprint of the plans that were given to them. And Solomon brought in the things that David his father had dedicated and stored the silver, the gold, and the vessels in the treasuries of the house of God. Now let's skip down to verse 13. And it was the duty of the trumpeters and singers to make themselves heard in unison in praise and thanksgiving to the Lord, meaning there was a celebratory dedication of this structure that's just been built, this new wonderful temple replacing the tabernacle. And when the song was raised with trumpets and cymbals and other musical instruments in praise to the Lord, and then briefly a description of what they were actually singing, the lyrics were, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever, which tells us if this was the song that the Lord inspired the dedicated singers in the temple to sing at the dedication of the house of the Lord, then the the lyrics of the song describe the essence or the heart of the purpose behind the construction of this temple. What was the essence of why the Lord wanted this structure built? Because the Lord is good and his steadfast love endures forever. His love for who? His love for his covenant people. So this is a house in which the Lord will move in like he did with the tabernacle in order to dwell with his covenant people by dwelling in their midst. So they sang praises to the Lord for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. And the house, the house of the Lord, was filled with a cloud. And of course that should also ring a bell because it's identical to what happened with the tabernacle in the wilderness. The difference is this, and it's an interesting difference, and I think it's one we're meant to notice. With the tabernacle being filled with the cloud, that was an easy thing for Israel to understand because that cloud, prior to the moment that it descended upon the tabernacle and then filled the tabernacle, that cloud was in proximity to them the entire time. All of their journey, every day of their journey, since they left Egypt to when they came to the foot of Mount Sinai, that cloud was right there visible to them. 
and they were in relationship to it. And then that cloud was situated on top of Mount Sinai for the 40 days and 40 nights that Moses was in the cloud in the presence of the Lord. And when he finished the work at the bottom of the mountain, the cloud lifted from the top of Mount Sinai and descended and and covered the tabernacle and then filled it. Here, it's the same identical cloud, but the question is, where has it been in all of the intervening years? It hasn't been visible to the children of Israel since the wilderness journey ended. And now the same cloud is once again for a short period of time, a symbolic revelatory purpose. It's now visible once again in the eyes at least of the priests that are able to function as witnesses of the presence of the cloud and the house which is the temple now identified in the same category that the tabernacle previously was identified but the tabernacle is now the old house meaning the cloud will not fill both structures at the same time he moves out of one structure in order to move in to the new structure the greater and better structure we're going to see in our next couple of studies but especially two weeks from tonight how the temple functions in relationship to the tabernacle in that it serves the same identical purpose but everything is bigger more beautiful more wonderful the lord is not moving from great to good he's moving from great to even greater to even greater to even greater in his progression of his redemptive purposes in history so when he moves into the temple what's implied is and it really did happen that at the same time he moves out permanently from the tabernacle and then verse 14 the same thing the priests experienced the same thing that moses experienced in exodus chapter 40 when the lord moved into the house so that the priests, the house of the Lord was filled with the cloud so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. Again, emphasizing the same principle, which is this is a house exclusively for the Lord's use. All right, now let's jump way ahead to the book of Ezekiel. Chapter 9. It helps, and I'll just briefly describe this. It helps to just understand the historic context of the prophecy of Ezekiel. You might remember the days in which Ezekiel prophesied. They were the days of the children of Israel having been taken into captivity. Remember, their story as a covenant nation started in captivity. How did their story start? What was the captivity? They were in captivity in Egypt as slaves to Pharaoh. And the Lord, under the leadership of Moses and with the pillar of fire and cloud, led them out from their captivity, out from their enslavement, out into freedom, out into a new covenant relationship with the Lord. In all of the intervening years, between the days of Moses in Egypt and the wilderness journey, the exodus, as we describe it, to the days of Ezekiel, all of those intervening years have been days of glorious freedom and enjoyment of covenant relationship with the Lord. But now, in the days of Ezekiel, the children of Israel are once again in captivity. Who are they in captivity to now? Not Pharaoh, not Egypt, but King Nebuchadnezzar and a new empire an even greater and more dominating empire, the empire of Babylon. Why are they in captivity to Babylon when the Lord has promised, as long as you stay close to me, don't worry, I have got you covered. I will protect you. I will give you peace and rest from all of the surrounding nations that have ill will toward you. If they curse you I will curse them if they bless you I will bless them but I am your protector so how do they find themselves in captivity in Babylon well in the intervening years and especially building up to this point in time 
in the most recent generations, Israel has disconnected from faithfulness to their covenant relationship with the Lord, and they have begun to worship the gods, the the so-called gods of the nations, the idolatrous gods of the nations that surround them, and they have committed what the Lord identifies as spiritual adultery against him. Not just once in one really bad moment of Israel's story, but they have done so consistently and progressively and in an enduring way for way too long of a period of time. And finally the Lord draws a line and says, that's it, no more. You won't listen to me, so you'll learn from difficult and hardship experiences. So I'm going to put you back where I found you, just in a new location, a new captivity, a new nation, but a similar kind of circumstance. You were slaves before I married you. Now I'm going to let you be slaves again because you are discounting the, the, the blessings and the benefits of our covenant relationship. So all of that's the backdrop. And then Ezekiel, who is among the children of Israel in captivity in Babylon, is receiving revelatory visions from the Lord to explain what's going on. That's where we're picking up Ezekiel's account. I'm going to read you from four different passages in Ezekiel. And uh, I will kind of briefly explain what's going on so we don't lose the story here. Um, They're not long passages. The first three verses of Ezekiel 9. And what's going on here is Ezekiel's been being kind of like John in the book of Revelation. Ezekiel's being um, escorted through his visionary experiences by an appointed angel of the Lord who is a messenger explaining to him what's going on. So this is what's happening here. Then he, the angel, cried in my ears with a loud voice saying, bring near the executioners of the city. The city here is Jerusalem. It's a call for judgment upon the city. Each with his destroying weapon in his hand. And behold, six men came from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north, each with his weapon for slaughter in his hand. And with them was a man clothed in linen with a writing case at his waist. Kind of a, kind of a, a record keeper of the judgment that's about to unfold. And they went in and stood beside the bronze altar. That's now in the courtyard of the house of God, the temple of God. And then verse 3, our key verse. Now the glory of the God of Israel... What is the glory of the God of Israel at this point in history? It's the Shekinah cloud of the Lord's presence. Now the glory of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherub on which it rested to the threshold of the house. And he, that's the Lord inside the revelation of the Shekinah glory, he called to the man clothed in linen who had the writing case at his waist. And the Lord said to him, the Lord is giving now instructions for the judgment to unfold. Just before the judgment is poured out upon the city of Jerusalem, Ezekiel's given a vision, and in his vision, he sees the Shekinah glory cloud, which all the way back to Second Chronicles had come upon the temple of God in Jerusalem and filled the temple in which the Lord was signifying he was moving into the house that was built according to the spiritual blueprint so that he could dwell in the midst of his people in covenant relationship with them. All the way since that time, the glory of God was filling the house in Jerusalem, filling the temple until this moment. And in this moment, something happens to the Shekinah glory. It lifts from the cherub. What is the cherub? The cherub are the two, the cherubim are the two Um, representations on either side of these special angelic beings, either side of the Ark of the Covenant, the box in the Holy of Holies that represents the throne of God in heaven. And the presence of the glory of the God of Israel was directly over the box in between the cherubim. Now that glory leaves The Ark of the Covenant leaves the innermost room of the sanctuary, the house of God, and it goes where at the end of verse 3? It goes to the threshold of the house. What's the threshold of the house? It's the front door. The front door serves two purposes. And remember, there's only one door in the Garden of Eden 
One door in the Ark of Noah, one door in the tabernacle, one door in the temple, and we've talked already about how that all points to Christ. But that door functions in two ways, just like the Garden of Eden door. The gate for the Garden of Eden functions in two ways. It's a entry point and an exit point. What's surprising is that in the Garden of Eden, it was, it was the covenant people, Adam and Eve, who were ejected out of the gate. And the Lord remained in the garden. Now, it's the Lord leaving his own house. He leaves the innermost room and he goes to the front door of his house and pauses there before he moves out of his house. He is symbolically and dramatically showing his people, I am done with this covenant relationship of your adulterous unfaithfulness to me. I'm moving out. I'm not going to be here anymore. All right, let's go on to chapter 10. Let's look at the first four verses. The vision continues. Then I looked and behold on the expanse that was over the heads of the cherubim, there appeared above them something like a sapphire in appearance like a throne. And he said to the man clothed in linen, go in among the whirling wheels underneath the cherubim. Uh, This all has to do with the vision he was given in chapter one. And it's a very detailed vision, but in essence, the Ark of the Covenant is revealed in a spiritual sense to Ezekiel as having wheels, meaning it's movable. There were not actually wheels in the Ark of the Covenant, but in the vision, it shows that the Ark is functioning as a movable throne so that wherever God's people are, God could be. All right, that's the idea. Verse 2, And he said to the man clothed in linen, Go in among the whirling wheels underneath the cherubim. Fill your hands with the burning coals from between the cherubim and scatter them over the city. These are now coals of judgment. And he went in before my eyes. Now the cherubim were standing on the south side of the house when the man went in, and a cloud filled the inner court. And the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub to the threshold of the house. That's the same description as we saw back in chapter 9. And what? The court was filled with the brightness of the glory of the Lord. What's the court? The court is, remember there are three segments to the tabernacle, three segments to the temple. We're going to look at those three sections in detail next week. But you have the Holy of Holies, the innermost room, the holy place, which is the outer living room of God's house, and then the court, which is the front yard, so to speak the courtyard of God's house. He's now past the threshold. He's heading out of the house. He is now outside the house. And he's not out just to kind of have a barbecue. He's out because he's moving out. Um, Look a little deeper into the chapter, verse 18. Chapter 10, verse 18. Then the glory of the Lord went up from the threshold of the house and stood over the cherubim. And the cherubim lifted up their wings and mounted up from the earth before my eyes as they went out with the wheels beside them. And they stood at the entrance of the east gate of the house of the Lord, and the glory of the God of Israel was over them. Now, okay, so the Lord has moved from the innermost room to the threshold. He's moved from the threshold to the courtyard. And now in this chapter, he's moved from the courtyard to the east gate of the courtyard. And he's heading out and he's heading east. Where will he end up? One last chapter. Verse uh, chapter 11, and we'll just pick up two verses in chapter 11, verses 12, I mean, excuse me, verses 22 and 23. Then the cherubim lifted up their wings with the wheels beside them, and the glory of the God of Israel was over them. And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain that is on the east side of the city. Now, where does the glory of the Lord end up. He's moved from the Holy of Holies, the deepest room in the house, to the threshold of the house. He's moved from the threshold to the courtyard outside the house. He's moved from the courtyard to the gate of the courtyard heading east. And now he moves out of the city of Jerusalem entirely. And he moves where? To a mountain, a specific mountain, the mountain on the east side of the city of Jerusalem, which is what mountain? The Mount of Olives. And then we get eventually, and I won't take us to this, I'll just, for those who are taking notes, you want to connect 
Matthew chapter 24, verses 1 through 3, which we studied in great detail when we went through the Gospel of Matthew together. Why move to the Mount of Olives? The Mount of Olives is situated directly across from the Temple Mount, and there is a valley in between called the Kidron Valley. Jesus, when he was done with his ministry and done with being rejected by the religious leaders of the city of Jerusalem in the very last week of his public ministry before he was crucified, just before he was crucified, he went out of the city, leaving the temple, leaving the temple precincts. He went down through the Kidron Valley and he went to the summit of the Mount of Olives and then sat there and looked back with his disciples at the temple and started a discussion with them, a prophetic discussion in which he was describing how the Lord was bringing judgment upon that temple and upon that city. But sitting in the Mount of Olives, he's saying, I'm disconnecting. I'm no longer in the midst of my people. I'm disconnecting. I'm moving out of my house. So what we see, big picture overview, and this is the end of our study tonight, is that all of this thing about the tabernacle and the temple has to do with the Lord's intention, his saving purpose in Christ, ultimately to permanently move into a house which is his people to be in a covenant relationship with his people, but he's having to portray it in old covenant context. So he does it first with the tabernacle, does it second with the temple, but then ultimately when they are unfaithful to that covenant purpose, he moves permanently out of the temple, never to move in in the same way again. So if he's moving out of one structure, which he did with the tabernacle, in order to move into a new structure, a greater structure, a more glorious structure, a more permanent and enduring structure in the temple. Now he's moved out of the temple. Where will he go? Is the Lord going to be homeless on earth? He's going into the new covenant structure, which is going to take the place of both. The structure is, of course, the church. All right, so next week, Lord willing, we'll come back and we'll dig into the details of the construction of the tabernacle, the three sections of the tabernacle, what items of furniture were in each section, and how they all, all of those details ultimately point to Christ and his work. God bless you.